Hello there, everyone, and welcome once again to the Soldiers of Cinema podcast. I'm Clark Coffey, and with me, as always, is Mr. Cullen McFader. Hello, Cullen. How you doing? Good, good. How are you? I'm doing excellent, man. I'm excited for episode 31, where we're going to discuss the silence of the lambs i kind of mm. wanted to say silence of the ham i don't know where i got into calling this movie silence of the ham i mean they do say that that pork is the most similar texture to human <laughs> oh you would go there i was actually going to talk about anthony hopkins performance as dr lecter but <laughs> we clearly have two different uh wavelengths <laughs> yeah yeah exactly um, oh my gosh but no this is i mean i'm really excited for this this is one of i am my... too you yeah, know, favorite movie, probably in my top five favorite movies of all time. I, oh, okay. I'm a very big wow. fan of Silence of the Lambs. Um, it very much influences a lot of my work. Um, and, uh, you know, from beyond just genre, I think. Absolutely. Well, it's, I mean, look, it was, it, I had forgotten at, you know, uh, what a huge, uh, you know, critical darling this was when it came out in 1991. Mm-hmm. Obviously, so many aspects of this film have, you know, have kind of seeped into the uh, pop culture and the cultural lexicon. Uh, mm-hmm. Anthony Hopkins' performance, um, Ted Levine's performance. I mean, you know, it puts the lotion on its skin. I mean, come on. These, you know, Put these the things. Put the lotion in the basket. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, so... Uh, no doubt a huge film. And I had kind of forgotten, you know, some of that. I like go back to 1991 and we could c- kind of start our discussion of this by, by sharing our personal, uh, mm-hmm. experiences with the film, yeah. our personal initial experiences with the film. And it's always kind of fun again, because you and I are, uh, you know, a, a bit apart in age. We're about 20 years apart in age. So we come to these films at different times. And so in 1991, I'll just age myself here. I was in high school and I don't know, I don't remember seeing the film at the theater, although it's possible I did, but I definitely remember seeing this, you know, on video soon thereafter, right when it came to video. I remember it being a huge film. Uh, mm-hmm. I remember it being a big deal. Uh, it was all over the place. And I remember enjoying the film when I when I saw it, uh, when it was uh, in its first kind of release there, but not being you know, especially captivated or blown away or mesmerized by it, certainly recognized it was a good film, but I don't think it it had the same impact on me as it had on you. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, it was, you know, I mean, geez, this thing is gross 272 million is the fifth highest, uh, you know, uh, fifth, fifth highest box office of that year. I mean, like you had mentioned just a second ago, I mean, my goodness, it, how many Oscars did this thing win? It, it won five, all. Yeah, it won all big five. Yeah, won the big five. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, huge, huge deal. But and it was uh, only, I think, the third or fourth movie to do that. Was I it? think the third at that time? Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, for me, I, what I, what I think is really interesting is that this is actually, you know, just before I get into like my personal experience, what I think is really kind of neat is that this is a huge movie for my generation for some reason. Even though you know I was born yeah. seven years after this came out in '98. That's so um, odd. But, like, everyone I know that's my age, film enthusiasts or not, really love this movie. Um, like, even the most casual people that, like, aren't really into movies, they know this movie, they love it. And uh, I don't know why that is, but um, it really, for some reason, has a huge impact on on my generation. Yeah. Um, but I saw it probably the first time in the early 2010s when I was probably in, like, grade 9, I think was when I first watched it. And I remember being kind of concerned because... Um, it was a movie that I'd heard so much about. Like my dad used to do the, you know, <laughs> that when I would be trying to go to sleep at night. Um, 
And uh, but so I, there's like, of course, it's one of those things that's it's hyped up beyond belief before you get to it. And yeah. um, I loved it. I remember watching it and being kind of concerned that I wasn't going to like it as much and that it was just going to kind of not live up to the hype. But I, I've always there's been something that I don't know, just really um, I don't want to say like speaks to me because, of course, it's a movie about cannibals. But <laughs> but um, <laughs> well, I mean, you did start think, off talking it's, about it's it's pork. one of those movies that that's kind of funny that I, i'm sure you've had these experiences too where you watch a movie and you kind of go like those choices are my choices you know if mm-hmm. i was directing this i would make all of the same choices that Dem- yeah. Dem- i mean obviously i don't think i'm as talented of a filmmaker as jonathan demi but um one of those things that i just agree with everything that, that every choice that's made like there's not a moment in this movie that i go like ah that could be done differently um and i think that that's really interesting to me because i i you know again whenever i get a movie like that it, it is it's just a lovely feeling to to fall in love yeah. with a movie like that. But also, um, just the idea like that this movie again, as I mentioned briefly earlier, it had like influenced me so much that you know the Herzog movie that the movie that I made for Herzog's Masterclass was really inspired by Silence of the Lambs. In fact, I even stole an audio bite from Lecter saying TikTok 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 and used it in my Herzog movie. I love um, it. And, and, and then, the film that you're working on now is yeah, and inspired, so yeah, and the film right? that I'm working on right now. And, and that's what I mean when I sort of say that it's not like a genre dependent thing where it's like, I'm sitting here going, Oh, I'm making a serial killer movie. Right. That's not it at all. It's more just the way that I think, uh, I think just the style and way in which Demi handles like the screenplay and the way that he shoots things in Tak Fujimoto's cinematography are just to me, like really stunning and really beautiful. Um, to the point that I, I can't help, but, you know, pull from it. Um, yeah. so, and for, you know, for example, that the, the big finale, I'm not going to spoil it because of course the movie's not even shot yet. <laughs> spoil. But, oh, oh, your film. You're talking about your yes, film. Yeah, okay. Yes. Okay. Not, not, not I Silence was like, of the Lambs. I was like, that, I don't think you know, have to worry about 30, almost 30 years for Silence old. I think of the Lambs. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, no, it is 30 this year, isn't it? Yeah. 90, it's a, it's mind blowing. Yeah. I feel so old. old. I feel um, so old. But uh, which scares me because I'm only seven years younger than this movie. So <laughs> that means I'm seven years to 30. But yeah, um, but I, I you know, the, the finale for my the movie that I'm working on right now, I remember having a lot of trouble coming up with exactly what I wanted to do with it. And I had a general idea of, you know, initially the movie that I can sort of say this because the movie now is so different from its original drafts, like it's almost completely unrecognizable. Um but it was very inspired by Texas Chainsaw Massacre initially mm. um, in that that was kind of what I was going for for the finale. This like adrenaline fueled, visceral, you know, violent, gory, exciting, um, very grindhousey kind of feel. Yeah. And uh, but what I kind of realized and as much as I love Texas Chainsaw, like that, I I never really felt a huge following for those movies as I grew up. I didn't really, you know, as again, as much as I like those movies now, um, they didn't really inspire me or affect me growing up mm-hmm. um whereas something like this really did and so i kind of decided to take the movie and really transform it into something that was a lot more similar to the finale of this which is um you know there's no jump scares in this finale it's very like the you know her walking around the basement is very slow it's very methodical it's very well thought out um you know there's no scary music going on as it happens there's no skeletons falling out of closets and things like that but it's still it's you know i think a lot of people say that it's one of the most terrifying endings hmm. of a movie because it's just so um 
suspenseful. It's well, so, I want to work. I want to work yeah. up to that. I want to work up to that because yes, of course, I, yeah, we'll get, will, to the, we'll get to the you and I will have some. You and I will have some different opinions a little bit on mm-hmm. this, and so mm-hmm. it's going to be fun. Uh, yes, but yeah. I, of course, I, I totally appreciate and respect that this film is is one that has inspired you. And sometimes it's like you know, it was the right film at the right time. We can't explain yeah. why. I mean, look, there's been some films that. It's like I can't explain to you why necessarily the Road Warrior, a film that we discussed in the last episode, was such a a, a profoundly important touchstone for me as a kid. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I could describe all these aspects of the film itself to you, but look, the reality is, it's like some films really speak to us, and some films not so much, and yeah, that's yeah. perfectly wonderful, of course. Um, but I mean, let's let's kind of jump in then and discuss some of the aspects of this film. Mm-hmm. It'll be fun to see kind of where we might, you know, share some some thoughts about it and where we're going to have some different thoughts about it. So I mean, let's kind of talk about the writing a little bit, because uh, I think there's a couple really interesting, uh, significant aspects of this film that kind of originate in the writing. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, right off the bat, I think it's obvious we see some things here that are different than a lot of films that were uh, released in that era. We have a woman as a main protagonist. Mm-hmm. And usually in these kind of, I don't know what you will, what would you even call I mean, it's kind of part horror. It's part kind of thriller, psychological, thriller, it's, kind of police yeah. procedural almost. Police I also, I mean, and, and very much in line with that too, what you're, you know, kind of like the differences between that you know, a lot of people don't know that it's, it's also a sequel to uh, sort of like an unofficial sequel, but it's, it's, it's a sequel to Manhunter by mm-hmm. Michael Mann. Um, and again, I think all those differences that you just mentioned there very much come up. Like if you watch those two movies back to back, Manhunter's much more of a traditional, you know, male cop hunting down a serial killer, um, mm-hmm. very eighties in a lot of ways. Um, right. you but know, even in the nineties, we don't have a lot yeah. of, we don't have a lot of women protagonists. Yes. Uh, in yeah. these type yeah, of yeah. films. So that's obviously a big deal. And I think, and, and more than just that it's a, a, a protagonist as a woman, I mean, we see this a lot throughout the film that the film is really highlighting the male gaze. It's mm-hmm. highlighting uh, her, you know, we have a, a handful of scenes that really illustrate the differences um, of her as a, as a woman uh, being mm-hmm. in a man's world and and we see this very visually symbolically of her getting into the elevator with half a dozen men who are twice as tall as her jodie foster seems to be perhaps a, a petite person yeah, yeah uh yeah. you know we have the where all the state troopers are in the room surrounding her and kind of you know she we see a lot of men kind of get you know look her up and down and yeah. objectify her or we, just completely lose respect like have no respect for her don't have no respect for her yeah. we have which is uh, in stark contrast to something like that came out in the same year as well uh terminator 2 um which of course has a female protagonist yeah but in a very different way and jodie foster actually has commented on this in the past too yeah. which is this idea that clarice isn't a, a a female hero that's that's you know taking the male tropes and just applying them to a woman character where she's like big strong you know she's very much embodied in her feminine it's not a woman trying to be a man yeah i guess yeah or or presented i mean it's right like vulnerable and she's she's real she feels like a real person yeah so it's interesting different ways to of course it's not that you know like certainly a woman can be like linda hamilton and be physically imposing and 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 have all these characteristics uh, but yeah, just a different way to represent and that. It was kind of the first time that that a movie had done that 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 a movie hadn't portrayed a character like Linda Hamilton in T two, which was like that. You know, you think of even another James Cameron movie like Ripley in Aliens or something uh-huh. like that, which is still again very much going for action oriented. 
action hero kind yeah. of like you know just a, a female schwarzenegger or like something like that yeah um whereas this was one of the first movies and at least i can think of that really embraced that had a a a female protagonist in a movie that wasn't like a rom-com or a romance or a drama that it was like a, a thriller. It was a serial killer police movie. Um, but our, our main character is, is a woman who is vulnerable, who, who, you know, has um, a lot of insecurities and things like that and, and has trouble really imposing herself on the scene. And especially, you know, I think one of the, one of the moments that really highlights that in this film as well is when she, um, when Crawford says to the guys, you know, like, let's have this conversation kind of out of the earshot of the woman. And then she says afterwards to him, you know, you don't, you know, these guys pick up on that and they'll, they'll continue to, you know, yeah. see you. The film and really calls that out. And, yeah. yeah the, really, the film's it, not afraid to call these things out, uh, yeah, and exactly. illustrate the, the unique challenges that a woman might have in this yeah. position. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I was, I, I, of course, I don't think that was something I noticed nearly as much when I watched this film the first time when I was, geez, whatever that was, 15 years old or something. But certainly mm -hmm. I, I, I particularly noticed that this time around, I, you and, know, something, yeah, something yeah, else I, that I found was different in that. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. If you've got no, another. No, I, I, and this actually might be sort of similar to what you were going to say, but um, that I find that what's an, another thing that's interesting about that idea is that like the, there's kind of. You know, every villain in this movie or every antagonist in this movie embodies some sort of sexist behavior, which I think is really interesting. Well, that's what was I, that was what I was going to talk about, yeah. but at yeah. an even higher level, that this film has, to me, what seems to be multiple antagonists. That's yes. actually yeah. something I, so even a step back further than where you were even going to start at. So to my mind, you know, and, and I think it's one of the things that makes this film so memorable to, memorable, memorable to people, and I think it's what... One of the things that makes this film as strong a film as it is, right? We hear constantly this idea that, you know, a film is only, a story is only as good, a film is only as good as its antagonist. Mm -hmm. uh, a, a, you know, a protagonist is only as good as, a, as the antagonist. And here, we actually have at least a couple, and I might mm -hmm. make an argument for maybe three or two and a half, yeah. really good antagonists. And they're very different they're they're unique and how and they're and the threats that they present in certain ways but you know you've got of course dr lecter uh portrayed by um anthony hopkins and you know of course it's extremely memorable memorable antagonist and he's really built up in this film to be this just you know uh, almost almost like magically dangerous that he can you know that he can get out of the situations that he gets out of and do yeah. the thing i mean he's yeah. you know the way and it's we can talk about this the way the film presents him so that we as an audience are, are feel threatened by him and and are aware of his danger are even so, when he's behind six inches of glass yeah. even when he's behind six inches of glass and he's in steel cages and he's got mouth guards on i mean he's he, he's just such a terrifying figure. And then, of course, we have Buffalo Bill, a completely different type of antagonist. Yeah. Um, and and then we and then I would even argue, I would argue that even Dr. Chilton is a little bit of an antagonist. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. In certainly. a totally different way that he's inside the system. I think he's kind of presented somewhat as a sexual predator, uh, certainly as a misogynist, certainly mm -hmm. as an obstacle to uh, Clarice, our protagonist. And, and so you know maybe a you know half of an antagonist or something but but definitely interesting and i do think it's it's, it's neat to kind of com compare to again uh, with with um 
Manhunter because it is the same. It was basically the same cast of characters and the same story, mm-hmm. except it's Crawford is the main character of Manhunter. But Crawford in Manhunter has to go and interview Lecter to find a serial killer. That's what that movie is. So it's very much pretty much an identical plot. Um, it's just that you really, I think, come to appreciate the subtlety, I think, of Silence of the Lambs a lot more when you watch Manhunter as well because of exactly what you're talking about, which is that this idea that it's, you know, a villain doesn't have to be the killer. You can have an antagonist in it that is technically on the side of our hero. And I would even go as far to say, too, that that there's elements of Crawford that sort of make him, in certain moments, you know, antagonistic to Clarice. Mm. Um, you know, every male character in this movie, in a lot of ways, is sort of portrayed with an unease. Um, and even the guy that brings her to the storage lot and like helps her open the garage, (laughs) you kind of feel like uneasy about him or the guys that she goes to, to talk about the moths with, like they're, they're kind of goofy and stuff, but they still like the first thing they do is hit on her. That's true. Um, So I think it's really interesting in this movie that you get this perfect comparison to a previous movie done by a different director, same book series based off of very similar plots, but you really get to see kind of, how the movie is elevated by introducing this element of not only is this character hunting a serial killer and having to talk to this, you know, psychoanalytical mind warping serial killer like Lecter, but on top of that, she's a woman in a man's world. And yeah, she's got to deal with, with this, this slew of, in this onslaught of um, whether it's just underestimation or whether it's active harassment Mm-hmm. Um, or objectification it's about to be murdered. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, you get all these different elements so, that very much yeah play into that. So, what do you think? Let's talk about Buffalo Bill and Dr. Lecter a little bit. Uh, I mean, these are two characters and two performances that have well outlived the film. I mean, these yes. are yeah. these are both of these performances and characters entered into kind of the the public domain, the the, the mm-hmm. pop mm-hmm. culture, if you will. And I mean, just about everybody knows it can at least like recite a line, you know, the fava beans or, you know, the puts the lotion in the basket or I mean, yeah. And, and, yeah. and there's some interesting things I think to kind of, to analyze, think about and discuss about these two characters is, I mean, they're really what makes the film. I mean, I feel like Jodie Foster, like many films like this, is, is a little bit of a blank canvas. Now, it's interesting that we do have an arc for her, and um, and I think much more so than a lot of films like this, you know, she, she does have an arc, and because of her relationship and interactions with Lecter, we do learn about her backstory, mm-hmm. and which, which I think is unique to this film. A lot of times the hero doesn't have as much of that in a film like this. Yeah, they kind of try to make them sort of more a projection of... A projection of the audience, and it's much more about the antagonist and their kind of... Right? But, but so I think that's, that's one of the other aspects that makes this film, uh, uh, elevates it beyond a lot of and films. And it makes it, what's genre. really interesting about the handling of it too, is that it's not, you know, when you say elements of like learning about Clarice's backstory and stuff, we learn what's important to her, but we never find out if she's in a relationship. We never find out if like things like that, that are totally, you know, what well, I could personal totally life see being, is not, her personal yeah, life is and completely I totally not a part of this film. I could see that being thrown into a, a movie if it was, you know, perhaps a less talented director who was like, oh, she's got to have a boyfriend to go home to and like vent to or something. Right. Um, but, but the movie doesn't bother itself with that. It really, I think this movie has a very laser focus on like what it's trying to do, what it's trying to say. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think, think really if, if I'm flavor. not mistaken, I think there were, you know, in the writing process, there, there were some kind of, you know, hints of, of, of there being 
a little bit of a thing with her. Is it Crawford, the FBI boss? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and in the I think in the book and maybe in earlier draft of the script, I think mostly in the book there is kind of you know sexual uh, tension kind of or, or, or kind or... of yeah a little bit. But I think in the book Crawford is dealing with the death of his his wife is dying. I think. Mm-hmm. And and so he's under a tremendous amount of stress and he sees her something in her that I think he is attracted to. I think there's you know, it, you could I don't think that's really um, presented in this film, although you can kind of, you know, make a couple steps of assumption and, be you know, why is he, you know, picked her out of everybody else? Yeah. yeah. Why is he focusing so much on helping her? Why is, you know, I mean, he calls her off the obstacle course, you know, and you've like got to come in here. You know, I mean, he really puts, takes her under uh, his wing and she is the only woman FBI agent we see in the film. And, and, he and what's funny too, is really reaches out to she, her. Uh, the most flirting that she does in this movie is to get by some, like even with Lecter, like there's almost this element of like a strange transfiction of like romance between them that kind of grows by the end of the movie where it's like Hmm. maybe not like a sexual romance but certainly this like odd mutual respect of well there's no question that that lector let's let's talk about like yeah i want to let's focus it on that because i think this i want to talk about lector as a character and then and then i want to talk about buffalo bill too but i think you know from a story perspective let's talk about lector i mean i think you know, obviously, he's an extremely interesting antagonist. He's an extremely interesting character. And you're right. I think in a strange way, he actually respects Clarice more than any other of these characters. Yeah, of these characters. totally. Exactly. Um, yeah. And he's interested in her. He listens to her. He he very clearly wants to understand her history, her motivations. And wants her to learn on her own. Like, not give her yeah. the answers. but Absolutely. Yeah. And he clearly uh, is affectionate for her. I mean, we even have an insert of him, you know, grazing her finger as they pass, you know, files between the bars. You know, so, yeah, and that's, that's really played up in the sequels, too, like the Hannibal movie that right. came out and, after this, directed by Ridley Scott, which is not good at all. But they, they really play up the romance elements between them. Like he's I'm not going like to lie. I felt that her. was like a tad cheesy. I felt that that, that was a tad of a cheat. The little, uh, the little insert there of the, of the finger, finger I, 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 I like that moment just because I think that moment to me is like, it's so it's it, it's like oh my god she's touched like this guy that's behind these like huge yeah. plates of glass that you yeah. know, is basically in the seventh circle. It of rides hell the, at the line. This asylum. It, it rides the suddenly, line. Suddenly, suddenly, like he touches her and it's like oh he didn't kill her like he didn't grab her. And There's a couple her moments off, like you know? that and I'm kind of on the fence. I'm kind of on the fence. There's a couple yeah. moments like that, but um, but yeah, I mean so so. You know, it's it's interesting. I mean, what else can we say about this character? There's so much. I mean, Anthony well, I mean, Hopkins... even just like I think his character is summed up in a really great line by Clarice when she says when after he escapes and, and she says, like, he's not going to come after me because he would consider it rude. Right. And I was like, that's Hannibal Lecter right there. It's like he he's a serial he's... killer. He's a he's a sociopath. He eats people, but he well, he, he cares for man. Is he a sociopath? <laughs> so this is interesting. I don't, I don't know if he is or isn't, but this is definitely an inter- interesting discussion. I'd I say mean, much more so a sociopath than a psychopath to me. Well, it seems um, as though he does not lack the ability to empathize in this sense mm-hmm. that he is absolutely able to read people and understand their human motivations, their pains, their joys. It's not that he lacks the ability to... to, And 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 if you look at outtakes, and again, I don't know if, you know, is it fair to look at outtakes to kind of, you know, discuss this movie, but 
I, I don't think that the my idea of him is not that he is an unfeeling. So that's the key difference, though, character. between a psychopath. So this is going to be my my criminology background coming up. But that's the difference between a psychopath and a sociopath. That a sociopath is able to understand and feel emotions like empathy and sympathy and things like that. Mm-hmm. But they're also able to work over those. So they're able to basically shut that off. So if Lecter were killing somebody, that you can shut that side of you off. But you're also... And that's why sociopaths are considered much more dangerous when it comes to things like this. Because they can relate to empathize with understand human emotion they can they can be for all you know very regular people like the rate of sociopaths in society is much higher than psychopaths because psychopaths are unable to empathize unable to feel those things they don't have that you know development so they're completely unable to reach that level whereas a sociopath is much more hidden because they are able to feel those things and, and elicit those emotions. And so that's to me where, why I would say to me, Lecter's much more sociopathic than psychopathic because he is able to elicit the empathy. With, and in this story, um, yeah, with Clarice he, and stuff. He, he does so more than any other character. Yes. Aside exactly, from exactly. Clarice. And, yeah. and, you know, he, he's able to understand Buffalo Bill and he, and I mean, he understands Clarice and he's, yeah. you know, he's clear. We, he, and we, you know, and kind of, there's this backstory that he was a doctor. He's a therapist. And, you know, yeah. He's a therapist yeah. and one of the best who, you know, ever did his thing. And, mm-hmm. you know, but, but it's interesting. I mean, it, it seems to me that, that he has his own set of criteria and rules by which he lives, which of course we all do. His are quite mm-hmm. extreme. And you'd mentioned that in his world, being rude is like a capital crime, you know, yeah. and, yeah. and maybe it's kind of fun. And that we've all felt this way. I think we've all felt this way a little bit. How many times have you been driving down the road and somebody doesn't use their blinker and cuts you off? And for like a moment, you're like, you know, you could kind of like, we've all (laughs) been the victim of somebody else's rudeness. Now, it's interesting, right? Because what is rudeness? Rudeness is a lack of attention, conscientiousness, or empathy toward another person. That's basically what rudeness is. So Mm -hmm. it's interesting that Dr. Lecter is actually, when he is you know, uh, and, and, and actually it kind of, you know, sets him in motion, giving Clarice, um, information when Clarice has that really graphic interaction with the, with the cellmate right next to, uh, which is pretty gruesome and gross. And I Mm. I don't even know if I want to specifically outline what happens as she walks by his cell in this podcast for our younger listening for (laughs) our younger listeners but it definitely (laughs) does involve bodily fluids um being thrown on someone's face um but but that extreme act of rudeness kind of you know uh catalyzes dr Lecter and being like you know i'm gonna i'm gonna help you you know because you had to endure that rudeness i'm gonna help you at least that's Mm -hmm. the excuse he kind of uses to to begin this dialogue and i think her. it's authentic like at least that's my read for it is that yeah. it is genuine like that's his that's the like you said the catalyst it's the only time you see him emotional in the film and almost yeah and almost apologetic he yeah. is it's the only time you see his heart rate elevate and he's yeah. like because you had to endure this rudeness i'm gonna help you out and there's the shot too again of like right after that happens that clarice and him are mere you know inches apart except for the glass that they like get you know there's all the rules don't get close to the glass don't make eye contact blah 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 and then she gets right up in his face and it's like again feels very much like it's at least shot 
in this like melodramatic romantic way, which I find very interesting of a choice I could, to make. For sure. Um, I mean, they certainly are are are, are intellectually intimate. They yeah, are psychologically yeah. intimate. There's no question. Uh, yeah. I it's mean, all subtle. It's very subtle. That's the thing. Well, I think I, I think that it actually even it gets quite obvious. I feel like yes, yes. really quick. I Later mean, in the movie, like yeah. you have you have her uh, sharing with him things that about her life and her childhood that are profoundly intimate, and that mm -hmm. most if most of us would have to know someone extremely well to tell someone i mean you some of the you know we might we might not tell anybody other than our significant other or or, or maybe mm -hmm. sometimes not even then some of these really deep painful foundational hurts of our childhood this yeah. is profoundly intimate this is profoundly psychologically and, all, what I think and emotionally is really intimate too is that it's all under the guise of this quid pro quo but lector doesn't break that and lector is you know, almost arguably sort of in a way as open. Like he doesn't reveal things from his childhood and stuff like that, but he definitely, you know, even just handing her the towel. Um, well, he's fair. Out of the rain. He's and, fair. And he's fair. And he's, again, he's polite. He's gentlemanly. And that's kind of what's funny is that, you know, in the background of the story, there's the idea that Lecter, as, as many people who go on to be serial killers are was like abused as a child and stuff like that so there's this almost again, but we don't see this in the film and yeah the, it's not it, in the film at all it's but not it's, in this it's, film it's written into the the background of the character and it's not yeah not even mentioned at all yeah um but i do think that like looking at it with that kind of eye is interesting because you do again get this sense of like Clarice has gone through a very different type of childhood trauma. You know, she lost her father, and then she had to go live on this farm. And well, that's all the these characters the part. And, yeah. have this kind of childhood. And we'll, Buffalo Bill as well. When we move yeah. to Buffalo Bill, we'll see that that's very much a part of the the explanation of his character. And it's explicitly explained in the film that he had a traumatic childhood, and that yes. has led him yeah. to be the person he is. But, I mean, so yeah, you know, and, and then we have, like, we can kind of touch on... Uh, Anthony Hopkins performance, which mm -hmm. I mean, again, it's, you know, it's really what I, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was Sean Connery was the first choice. For, yeah. He declined it. <laughs> and yeah. he declined it. And I'm like, I, and Robert De Niro, I can't Al Pacino were also, yeah. Yeah. I can't fathom him as, uh, and of course <laughs> I don't think any of us can imagine <laughs> any, any, like none of us can imagine anybody other than Hopkins Buffalo because Bill he, he just, nailed yeah awesome like you know uh hopkins <laughs> does such a fantastic job but it's you're yes. right it's this yeah. it's this very calm very still very refined very elegant very polite very intelligent and and borderlining things, on the performative too but well he and this is why i made the joke a little bit earlier about silence of the ham there are mm -hmm. you know but I, it works here. It absolutely yeah. works here. But yeah, I mean, Hopkins does, you know, he plays with this role. He's clearly having fun with it. And, and that's, I mean, look, it's great to see. And clearly it's a fan favorite. People love it. And it's, you know, it's wonderful. But he does. And I think, too, I think, I think one of the reasons it works so well in the character is that it, it's, it, it feels more like Lecter is hamming it up than Hopkins. Like it feels like Lecter is putting on this performance for. Clarice, I think that's that a great note. Yeah. I I, so I think you're yeah. absolutely right. I, I think it completely fits. Hopkins is so does such a wonderful job embodying this character that you're absolutely right. It feels like this is Lecter. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and yeah, that's a great point. And I feel like that it's such a fine line. And it could have, I think, in the hands of a lesser actor, it could have absolutely seemed like the actor being performative well, as Brian opposed Cox to the character in, the, in in manhunter i think does doesn't 
hold a candle to Hopkins because of that. Yeah. Brian Cox in Manhunter is playing a villain. He's playing somebody who's like... Like the little, like, finger... Yeah, like he sits, you know, he sits in the <laughs> cell and it's like, well, Mr. Crawford, if you want your answers, I'll give... Like, it's, a like, Bond it's like villain. Really, like a really, Bond villain. Yeah, no, and it feels like that. It's really cheesy. It's really... You know, yeah. Again, and I'm, He's I'm got a, a big cat fan of Michael lap. Mann. Not a really big fan of Manhunter because a lot of, a lot of it just, again, is, is so over the top. Um, whereas, again, like you said in this one... Um, you know Hopkins lives in that much in the same way that uh, Foster like I what an incredible perfect storm of, of two actors who were just are just brilliant you know Jodie Foster is is one of my favorite actors yeah of all time I think she's just extremely you know, intelligent a, a, actor a fantastic Absolutely. actor yeah who does the work who is one of those actors that like every director dreams to work with because she brings so much to the page yeah. and brings so and you know the, listening to the conversations that she and Demi had on the production of this are just incredible because it's one of those things where it's like you know again every director dreams to work with an actor who fully understands the ins and outs of a character and well, I know she had a lot of input in the production yeah. I mean she yeah. made you know uh, just just an example I mean she you know uh, you hear her talk about the opening scene and originally as it was written yes. yeah. um, you know they wanted uh basically to have this kind of little bit of a teaser where you know she's uh she's you know i, I feel i'm trying to remember exactly but basically it's, it's terrorist. Like, you know she's, she's like hunting down a bad terrorists. guy she's yeah. like hunting down a bad guy and it's like yeah terrorist or something and you know and she shoots the person or she makes a mistake and shoots someone else i can't remember exactly but basically a real action-oriented scene where she's gunning somebody down and then you know, cut, haha, surprise, it was a training scenario. Yeah. So we kind of have this little bit of a, you know, of a fake out. And, uh, but it's kind of in a much more action oriented scene. And she's like, you know, I, I don't want to go that route. That's not the kind of character that I want to represent here. And and that's exactly what you had talked about, Colin, that she didn't want to be just another action oriented um, heroine here. Mm -hmm. And uh, she's like, no, I want to have her in this obstacle course that we show her, you know, doing her thing. And yeah, it's not subtle. Like literally, the first shot of the movie is her climbing up a hill. Absolutely, because it's an uphill. But I, I think that sometimes subtlety can be overrated in that way too. Like I, I don't mind a movie where oh, there's definitely not a like lot. That. There's a lot of things that aren't subtle in this film. But yeah, that do and there's work. there's a lot that are and a lot that aren't. That's what I think is so interesting. Like why yeah. I like examining this movie and why I've seen it so many times. And yeah, you know, so I pretty much watch it once a year. Because well, to me, it's it's there's so much subtle in the character work and subtlety and and um, I would well, say like really deep analysis and the psychology of these characters. But at the same time, like you said, a lot of the choices are also worn on the sleeve. A lot of it is very out in the open, very cheesy, very hammy, which is fun. It, it <laughs> well, makes it's, a lot of fun, and it's fun for me to to talk about it with you to see it through your eyes because again, like it, you know, it's been. I, I, probably 15 years at least since I've seen the film. I've mm -hmm. only seen it a couple times. Uh, it is not on my list of films that I watch with any frequency, and I've not spent a lot of time in thought about it or discussion of it. And so it's fun for me. I, I always love doing that to watch another, you know, to, to kind of see a film through another person's eyes who's yeah. a huge yeah. fan of that film because almost always like way more often than not i end up leaving those conversations with a lot more appreciation for the film so it's fun for me because my, mm -hmm. my goal is always to love i mean look i wish i loved every single film i saw right i mean that's the whole when, when i when i sit down to watch a film my hope is that i will absolutely love it so you know uh that's what i'm always looking for i, I don't ever want to watch a film to hate it you know yeah, yeah let's, yeah. let's talk a little bit about Buffalo Bill then. Yeah, uh, was, who I again, James Gale, or James Gum is his real name, but uh, yeah. Ted Levine plays him. Yes, who I think is a like I I 
really loved him. not in a ton of movies but i think when he's in a great movie, character actor steals the scenes that he's in he's yeah. such a yeah i like i would i dream to work with ted levine um ted if I you're just, listening ted yeah come be in my thing <laughs> <laughs> but no I, I think that you know ted levine to me is somebody just to talk about him for just a brief moment um, sure and then to get into buffalo bill but um somebody that commands attention like if you want to talk about an actor that that you know, is, is so, he doesn't, again, very different from the style of uh, character that Lecter is, or that the, the style that Hopkins plays Lecter in, which is very subtle, not subtle, but, you know, very well, still, very methodical, still, Still. yeah, very haunting. Um, Buffalo Bill, in so many ways, is the opposite of that. Yeah. Is, is impulsive. He's, um, dogmatic he's 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 desperate and 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 i love that about ted levine's characterization of him where it's like even the lines that you know the few lines that ted levine has in the movie he always seems unsure of whether he's saying them like not in an acting sense but you know just the character itself always feels like he's every time he speaks that he's not sure if he said the right thing or not well the thing that sticks out to me most right so as a as, as someone who hasn't spent a lot of time studying this film i mean right off the bat and 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 it was something that uh, I instantly re- remembered being really affected by when I first saw the film is his voice mm-hmm. to the point mm-hmm. where I was literally like, is this this actor's voice? Like, what are they doing here? I'm like, is this a Christian Bale Batman thing? Or is this like, I mean, he has one of the creepiest voices in that film I have ever heard. Yes. Yeah. Oh, and it, and it's I, that's the, the, it's so impressionable. Like me and my friends will almost always, <laughs> you know, just do the line, you know, oh wait, is she a great big fat lady or like put the lotion in the basket? I, yeah, I you wrote, and everybody written, else. Yeah, I've I, written sketches about this character just because of how you know how he delivers a lot. But again, yeah. one of those things that is so like for somebody, you know, I think it's so funny that like the two probably most quotable characters in this movie have the least screen time. Like they've got you know Hawkins, yeah. I think has like max fifteen minutes. Ted Levine probably has like seven minutes of screen time. And it's what we take away from the whole film. Yeah, and it's because they're so, so good at what they do. And they're so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, I just, again, it's just, it's, he really lives in that role, I think. And and the physicality and everything about it is just like he, um, I don't know. It's 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 hard to explain something. It's like when you say like that sometimes movies just work. Sometimes characters just work too. And you kind of like, it's so hard to pinpoint exactly what, is so good about them but um yeah so ted levine um and and but so what did you i'm actually curious to know what you what you think after so many years of seeing it yeah um of like what you know because i i've heard a lot of people say that it, it is again a very like it's a borderline almost comedic performance well i mean um, there definitely so. is comedy to it one of the things that's challenging is that you know so so by now right the film is something different than what it was in 1991. The reason being that this film did have such a, a cultural impact. It has mm-hmm. been parodied, satirized. It's been, yeah. uh, you know, it's inspired films. It's, you know, I mean, so many, it, it, so it's, it's, you take all of that baggage with you into the viewing of the film now. So there is, I think, some are there are some comedic elements to the film when watching it now, just because it's, it's permeated our culture. It's been parodied so much that mm-hmm. you can't help but to bring some of those memories into the film when you watch it now. And and I can't. I can't put myself back in 1991. I don't recall it feeling comedic in 1991, but I do definitely get a sense that there's there is some comedy 
and I think the film in some ways is a little it, it like cl- clearly it was ripe for parody because it was parodied so much been, and I, yeah <laughs> and I think some of that is that you know so many of these performances really ride that line so it's kind of ripe for parody it's like mm-hmm. Hopkins really rides that razor thin line um Buffalo Bill as a character really rides that line so it, I mean I call it Brie Cheese yeah. Which is like that it's like really good cheese. Like I love it, that. that yeah. You know, that it's not it's not it's not cheesy in the way that's bad. It's, it's like good cheese. Really, yeah, really... it's not Velveeta. It's brie. Yeah. yeah and absolutely. so and I and I um and I think kind of what you said as well, which is uh is is inter- is that I I too, when I first watched this movie, didn't think it was comedic at all. You know, it's yeah. it's it's thrilling, it's it's suspenseful, it's it's you know, psychological and dark and stuff like that. And then it wasn't until I think probably the first time I really found myself like laughing out loud at some of the moments and because they're so <laughs> just like rich with with well like, and certainly Dr. And... Chilton is yeah. I mean his character is just like he's like a polyester suit wearing lounge lizard like I mean his character is so over the top too it's it's that it, mm-hmm. it's I think it's funny I mean well, in I, 1991 yeah. was it funny I don't know but I look at it now in 2021 and I'm like Oh God! Yeah, he's I'm so laughing. sleazy. Yeah. I mean, and what like... I think is so funny too is that the only character to me, the only male character really that's like comforting is is Barney, who is the like the one of the guards that kind of is in that little airlock room between. Oh yeah. Like Bar- I think it's actually a really interesting choice to have that character even in the movie at all. Yeah. Because the like, there's something about that. I don't remember what the actor's name is. It's like the last. Is, um, it's like but, the last line of defense of humanity yeah, before but, I mean, you go you into just, the. You just like see that guy, and you just you're like. I bet he gives the best hugs. <laughs> like, well, that's what I mean. So it's the, it's, he's like the last yeah. line of humanity before you step into this this underworld, right? Yeah. I mean, we can talk. We're going to talk about this in a minute too. But that you know, the production design of that jail cell is far from realistic. That is not no. a realistic looking holding cell. Come on, it's yeah. it, and it and it. There's a reason why it looks like a dungeon, just like Buffalo Bill's basement. Look, that's also pretty unrealistic that someone's basement would look like that. Although mm-hmm. more realistic in some like East Coast areas, but. I mean, I think, look, it would be remiss if we didn't bring this thing up. I think it's important. Now, generally, we don't go too far into kind of, you know, discussions of like the politics of a film and things like that. Mm-hmm. But I think this is important. And it was something, you know, that uh, in 91, this would not have stood out to me, but it definitely stood out to me in 2021, um, is that, you know, the, the representation of transgender people in Buffalo mm-hmm. Bill. And, um, I, you know, it's, I think that's important. I think, Especially uh, if people can have, I've I've listened to a handful of of YouTube videos of analysis around yeah. this subject yeah. about this film from and trans people as well, which is important. absolutely yeah. which is where yeah. I've been. You know, I'm trying to listen uh, to yeah. to uh, trans voices about this, and I absolutely can see. And I mean, especially in the context of when this film came out, where there were very few, if any, positive trans role models in media representations in media and so i mean i absolutely can see how this would have been just one more you know negative representation on the pile of all these negative representations of trans people in media and i you know to me it, it it seems it seems to me that you know it's a big part of how they tried to make buffalo bill seem like a dangerous outside out like an alien outside weird yeah weird yeah. I, I think what's character also really was, was that too. his yeah sorry and go ahead do, and yeah. i was just going to say it i mean they do speak to it directly in the film mm-hmm. but even in the way they speak to it you know still i don't think lets the film off the hook now you know it's a product of its time and so it's you know 
Um, and it's good to see that, it, you know, it illustrates, I hope, the progress that, that we're making for other, mm-hmm. you know, of people and other voices. But, you know, I mean, they, they do kind of, and I've heard some people say, well, look, they speak to it in the film. And, you know, they say he's not truly a transgender person, which I'm like, I don't even know what that But really I was going to mention that, means. too, because that to now is such a big hot I don't, topic r- is like. Does that help anything? I don't think yeah, that and helps like, the film's case. Yeah, it's who can identify as trans? Who right. Can, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and not only that, but it's like, you know, trans people are are. What I forget the exact. I'm not going to get this right verbatim, but that they're like they're actually gentle and subdued, or you know that somehow you can categorize an entire group of people as this one way. Yeah. Um. And and, and so there's a handful of places in there where I feel like, um, you know, it illustrates I think an older point of view in these films, and and mm-hmm. so I think mm-hmm. it's just important to note, you know, that I feel and, like and they, obviously obviously you know in case it's not clear, you know, neither me nor Clark are trans, so. Obviously, we can't. The best that we can really do is listen to listen to other, and, the, you know. And right. If, if anyone who's watching um, would like to actually do further research, um, one of the videos that I sent over to Clark, who I think you actually said you'd seen. First before, of all, if you're watching, was, I'll be a little scared because yes, that means you're yeah. outside my window right oh, now, geez. and that yeah. would feel weird. But if you're listening, <laughs> you're in my if walls. You're listening, <laughs> um, if you're listening, and you want to kind of follow up on that, there's a really interesting video by ContraPoints that goes mm-hmm. through basically the entire mythology of like trans people in media and books, yep. films, television. Um, which I think, and of course, well worth a watch. A trans woman, so yeah, um, you know, a direct, you know, primary source of of you know knowledge from that. And of course, again, just like any community, the trans community is not a monolith. Um, there of are course. some trans people who say that there's no issue with Silence of the Lambs, as just as there's some people who say that it should be banned. Yeah. Um, you know, no community is a monolith. So there's going to be a very you know diverse a whole range opinion of perspectives. Set. Absolutely. Um, but I think what's important is is just again, like you said, listening and and and. You know, you don't have to, I think the, what I think is, is a really good point that ContraPoints makes is that like, you don't have to hate a movie to just because it's got, you know, dated politics in it. But what you can do is you can just, you know, watch it with that lens. You know, we know nowadays how, how differently trans people are identified in, in just culture, not only pop culture, but just, you know, society um, and how they're you know, how they're seen, how they're, how they're portrayed is, is so radically different today, um, in a lot of good ways, um, that you can kind of go back to these things. And again, using the modern lens that we have, um, watch the movie and sort of go, okay, yeah, that would definitely be done differently today. And, and I think, you know, one of the things that I think honestly would even help this movie, and it's such a simple change, would be having just one moment with an actual trans person, that's that you know that Clarice goes and talks to or something like that, and yeah, so you get just again yeah. this idea of like okay here's a voice from someone who is actually you know, and again that's that's another thing that really comes up in the movie's discourse is like when the word actually trans you know is said or like that you know that Buffalo Bill's is, Bill is not a real trans person and, and again that's such a hot topic of debate today yeah. of like what makes someone really trans versus not is it does it have to be a, a medical diagnosis or can it be mental can it be something that you know someone just feels like they are a woman does that make them as so yeah very again very much a, a hot obviously topic a debate. topic you could get into a yeah, great deal of detail about but um but, um, but yeah I think it's just good to 
interesting to note to it, yeah. as we look at the film. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, so speaking of looking at the film, let's talk a little bit about how the film looks. Ooh, did you yes. see what yeah. I did there? Wasn't that fancy? <laughs> so, <laughs> just like the people are looking in through our windows, so, watching us right now. So exactly. So you know, a, a handful of things jump out to me. Uh, the first thing that I really, that really jumped out to me was, holy crap, these close-ups into the camera. Mm-hmm. I mean, holy, like, wow. That I mean, that stood out to me. Yeah, so I um, love them. So I don't know. I don't know if you like or well, dislike I don't them, dislike. But, yeah. I don't dislike. And you yeah. kind of you you know that I kind of uh, well maybe you don't. We've talked about again like wide versus longer lenses and you yes, know getting yeah. up in people's faces and and using close ups and things. So I'm not fundamentally against close ups at all. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just something that really stood out to me. Uh, it was a it was a personal choice, obviously, that the cinematographer and Demi chose to to shoot in this way. Um, it, it is certainly, I, I think it does a couple things for me. I mean, one, you, you really get a sense that you're in Clarice's shoes. So, mm-hmm. so many of her conversations with these other characters, the characters are darn near looking straight into the barrel. Like they are, oh, they are in many cases, in looking, many cases, yeah. it's right. It's yeah. like, they are looking right into camera, which is usually a major no, no. And it's like, I mean, it's, you know, from, from top of head to like, not even the bottom of their chin. I mean, it's like extreme close-up on their face almost almost what i I think is so brilliant about that though why i really like it is because the movie almost makes it a part of its 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 storytelling oh it it doesn't stand out no it's throughout the whole film might at the beginning kind of be like oh that's that's an interesting way to shoot that but then because it happens so frequently and because it's such a it really works i think and tak fujimoto who is the cinematographer for it I, i think he um even just the way that he like i I really appreciate his work, especially in this, um, because he's one of those cinematographers that I think has kind of strikes the perfect balance between naturalistic lighting and heightened kind of old Hollywood style lighting. Yeah. Um, and like that really subjective kind of um, perhaps even kind of gearing into the uh, um, expressionistic style. Um but but again, it's I, I think that it, he he really strikes a really fine line between them that really works. Um, yeah. And you know that very much relates to not only the lighting, but you know as we were talking about the the way that dialogue is shot, the way that conversations are shot, and that it's you feel so much. You know, and I, I mentioned this. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned this while we were recording, if it was prior to the recording, but that this movie is first person, both in the literal and figurative sense. Oh, it very um, much is. In that, like, people are constantly looking directly at camera, directly at the audience. Yeah, you, you, we see this whole film from shoes. Clarice's perspective. There's yeah. no question. Yeah. Which is a big and difference again, from the book. And again, from a storytelling standpoint, you yeah. as well. Um, and I think that... Um, but again, there another really interesting thing that is probably a little bit more subtle than the the like directly down the barrel shots um, is that Demi was really really um, Demi and Fujimoto were both really conscious to shoot every single dialogue scene um, differently, so yeah. that they did not rely on just you know shot over the over shoulder shot, over the shoulder over the two shoulder, shot exactly yeah. they they really. Um, made the and a conscious effort to to make it feel as clarice is feeling every time she's talking to someone not only is she getting new information but she's in a new setting she's in a new per, uh, place so, new character yeah you know let's let's bring this up so that no no two dialogue scenes in this movie look the same um 
I think I know. I think that it's it's one of those which is challenging, yeah. which is oh, really challenging. challenging. I mean, yes. that it yeah. sounds maybe simple, but anybody out there who who who's ever shot, you know, just a t- you know, which of course, I mean, two the people bulk, at a table talking. It can the be bulk very of difficult a film, to, yeah, yeah, the bulk of a film is often two people talking, yeah, right, or maybe two or three people talking, and it's if you watch any, t- especially television, but if you watch, I mean. Sometimes eighty percent of a show of a you know a TV show or a film might be over the shoulder, over the shoulder, two shot, over the shoulder, over the shoulder, two especially shot. Especially you know, in dramas like this. Especially yeah. in dramas and uh, and especially in TV. And so we get really mm-hmm. used to it. And um, it, it's 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 an efficient way to shoot in the sense in a timely sense. Um, and and certainly you know it's often there's nothing wrong with it. But to to no, modify yeah. that, to change that, to to find different ways to shoot that. It's it's difficult, and, and to yeah. not have it be obtrusive, and to not you know, just it's mm-hmm. still serving the story right, and it's not distracting from the story. Um, it's tough. It can and be... speaking of of that too, distracting like like being obtrusive with camera work and stuff. Um, I also kind of want to mention the the uh, longer steady cam takes in this movie. Right, I think that the one so, is yeah. Um, a little bit of pretense. Um, Paul Thomas Anderson, who I think is a really brilliant pretense director. Pretense or pretext? Um, pretext, not pretense. <laughs> but but yes. but there, a Freudian well, slip. Suppose, you can yeah. certainly have a lot of pretense yes. in a oneer. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so so great. So, yeah. Um, so a little bit of pretext though on that kind of you know th- this idea is that Paul Thomas Anderson is um, a huge fan of Jonathan Demme, um, mm-hmm. so much so that he dedicated his previous movie phantom thread to demi after he passed away oh that's um, right i had and, forgotten that um you can really see demi's influence on anderson in his earlier work you know uh less so hard eight because i think that he had less didn't have the money and yes didn't have the money but in boogie nights and in magnolia especially you see oh, anderson really loves those long one like most of the scenes in that movie are just one or super and I, you know and yeah. so a lot of people love those those movies i'm i'm more of a fan of of pta's later work because i think he really brings that back and becomes less overstated yeah Um, but the reason i'm mentioning that is because i think it's a really great example of bringing attention to a shot like pta does and kind of almost using it to show off your skills as a director versus in you know silence of the lambs and the way demi handles these long takes on steadicam that they're hidden that they serve yeah. the story and that so one you know perhaps one of the more famous examples of it is when they're heading down to um Lecter's cell for the first time and Chitlin is bringing Clarice down um and it's not entirely one take there's a few cuts but it's very long it's a strung out scene of very long takes of them walking yeah. and um but you don't feel it you don't feel like it's long takes because you're you're walking with them and it, it serves the story because you're realizing that again kind of like i mentioned earlier that this guy is literally in the seventh circle of hell yeah that there are walls and doors and gates and bars and down. everything that's going and you're yeah, you're walking down into this depths of these dungeons and that you know on the upper st- floors of the the asylum that all the walls are white and they're newly painted and then you get down to this stone dungeon that looks like it barely has running water um and again i think that's really interesting and again it's one of those choices that's like it serves the story it it you know the choice to make those long wonders or in the moment they're very seamless one of the first times that you see buffalo bill's full basement is a wonder going through and following a moth and following his moth collection and then it goes and rushes by buffalo bill as he's sewing um skin his skin suit and then goes down the stairs into the the well and again why that works so well and why that's so effective and also a doesn't feel like it's demi showing off 
um, and is hardly even really recognizable as a oneer, is because it's setting up the geography for the scene so that later on when Clarice is trapped down there, we know, holy shit, this place is like a labyrinth. This place is like a maze. Um, and I think that's such a really great way to to establish geography in a scene like that when that geography also tells is going to be so vital later on. It, it, absolutely. And it also tells us so much about the character, though. It, mm -hmm. you know, in, in a funny, strange way, it, it reminds me a lot about the opening shot of Back to the Future, where yeah. you've got this yeah, yeah, long yeah, yeah. tracking shot, and we are learning so much about Marty and Doc and their relationship and where are who are they and what are they doing and all these kind of it tells us the history about the town and the clock tower i mean you know history of doc getting the pluton it's actually an extraordinary shot and it, just so much exposition and so much character uh we learn so much about the characters but in a way i feel like that shot you just described is like that four hour for uh buffalo bill we learned about the geography but we also learned so much about him and, mm -hmm. and the visual density of the things that we're seeing as we um, explore his geography. Yeah. So and, it, and so I mean, and then it comes down to editing too. the the editing in this movie, I think, is really, um, you know, a masterwork in, in how again, I, I always kind of reference the scenes that like go into dream sequences or memories or flashbacks mm -hmm. for Clarice. Yeah, but they're not done in a typical you know, close up of someone's face and then she goes and thinks about her and it's all you know, and you get like the white outline of like smoky fogginess and yeah, do 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 but um but no it's it's done in a way that, you know, it I think that to me this movie is feels has the most authentic memory in the world in any movie. In, yeah. in that I mean um that it feels like this movie does a really good job, especially with the editing, of putting you into feeling like you actually are remembering something because it's yes. it just it'll it'll what it'll do is it'll like pick up on hints of things that um that remind Clarice of something. And then it so for example, she'll see she sees the um police car drive by and then it cuts to a shot of a police car driving by and her watching a police car drive by as a, a kid and her dad pull up and that's how you get into that um memory it just gets right flashback. to it or the point at the funeral home when she's walking up to like as an adult walking up to this this coffin and you don't know you know for the entire scene is that pov shot of the coffin her as a kid or is that pov shot of the coffin her as an adult and then it cuts to a reverse of her as a kid really brilliantly done in terms right. of just like feeling like um that's what memories to me feel like that's how i think people remember things and have these flashbacks in real life and i think that works so well in this film because it's shot so strongly from her pov from <laughs> that character's <laughs> perspective from beginning to end yeah, and yeah. I think that decision to do that really sets up the ability to put together these flashback or memory scenes, like you're saying, as well as they are. And you're right; that's handled better than most films handle this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And, and let's talk a little bit about you know uh, set design. I think we've mentioned this quite a bit, but I think there's there's some really interesting, you know, not necessarily realistic, but so. Uh, effective at uh, establishing a feeling, whether that's the holding cell uh, that Lecter is in, um, uh, Buffalo Bill's home, and the basement uh, mm -hmm. in which he does his horrific, unspeakable acts. Uh, I mean, it, it really, uh, it, it kind of, you know, transcends necessarily the realistic. It does such an extraordinary job of, of setting up the the feeling of these characters and, mm -hmm. and 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 it does and you know it again it feels very appropriate for the world of the film 
Um, you buy it. You buy yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Like you buy not, it. Like I, at least for me, whenever I'm watching this movie, I don't. Even though those cells that like Heck Lecter and Migs and all the other dangerous people are in would never exist in real life. That's not how they would. Highly unlikely, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but it's still. It almost feels like these guys are beyond evil, beyond what we have. It in does real a life. great so job of that, right? To, yeah, they're not yeah. regular criminals. These are yeah. not regular. Like this is not a regular jail, and these aren't regular criminals. It's like you said. It. It's like they're like going down. You're like going down to the seventh level. You know? Yes. I mean, you're like mm-hmm. you're stepping into hell, and and uh, once you cross that threshold, you're in a different world. And even and, just like the lighting in that scene when she goes into that is just stark red. Uh, yes you know it's it's, yes. it's it's completely red light and they and again kind of going along um you know just a little bit of a different topic but this like even the sound design in that scene when when they get down there they put submarine sound effects so that it felt like you were in this like deep in depth the depth of something there's um, some great stuff with sound design yeah, and i, really, I, really I, I wanted to i wanted yeah i want to examine that in a second because that's is great point there's some really interesting stuff here let's talk about just but real briefly though as we wrap up kind of the look of the film and things you mm-hmm. know some other things that i noticed i felt like uh were really interesting how the film handles gore mm-hmm. um and like body horror and and there is some of that here there's definitely some kind of horror aspects there's definitely some gruesome stuff going on um aside from the body in the morgue um mm-hmm. you know a lot of the ways that the film shows us the nature of buffalo bill's crimes um uh, is that it gives us kind of like a degree of separation to help us i think digest that violence and that is by showing us the his, his uh, what the damage that he's done to these human bodies by having that in photographs in the film yes. so that we're yeah. we're not actually looking at the body itself we're not actually looking we're looking at a at a representation of a representation, so it's kind of a degree removed, and and um, it's an interesting choice uh, by the director. But it certainly helps. It, it it allows us to see the the gruesome nature of this person's crimes, of this character's crimes, but it removes it a little bit from us, so that it's not like a pure horror film, right? It's not what a <laughs> horror film would do. A horror film would would get right in there and show us the actual body. Uh, yeah, so it's definitely yeah. one of the things, one of the decisions that keeps this more in the thriller drama realm as opposed to And, and even, horror. yeah, even the, the moment in the morgue, I would say there's no, the close-ups of the, the body are forensic. They're not necessarily yes. like gore. It's not like no. going in on the knife wound or whatever. It's it's very... Um, it's it's very procedural. Yeah. Matter of fact, they're there, right, giving the their... It's a it's a very clinical kind of situation, and, and again, in very much going along with that kind of again to kind of bridge the gap between the the visuals and the audio, um, that the way that gore is spoken about too is is very clinical. It's very so like one of the scenes that I that really stands out to me is when they're in the the little kind of turboprop one engine single engine plane or whatever, and because it's so loud in this space that you have um, Crawford showing Clarice these um photos of the set of or sorry not the set the i hope not photos of the set but photos of the body and um as he's saying this he has to shout it at her because they're in this loud plane and so it's like so funny to me that like and it's such an odd thing to have these like gory details shouted at you yeah and to have them like you know that that he's like 
you know, the body was found over here. And it was, it was, it had six pieces of its skin cut out, blah, blah, blah. It's, well, yeah. the sound design, I mean, there's a lot of that in this film. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, so, and you'd noted, you know, with Howard Shore's score, uh, mm-hmm. He, mm-hmm. the score doesn't uh, really do much in, in a traditional kind of horror or thriller no. sense no. To, to highlight these, these really heightened, um, you know, uh, scary moments, right? The yeah. sound design does. We have things like you just described. We have the the roar of this turboprop plane uh, requiring that the gruesome details be yelled to the protagonist. Mm-hmm. We have um, we have other areas where when uh, Hannibal Lecter is in the hangar and he's talking to the senator whose daughter Buffalo Bill has kidnapped, just coincidentally, um, as as Hannibal Lecter is really digging in to the senator and pressing her emotional button there's a jet engine that rises and rises and rises in volume mm-hmm. as it spools up we have you know the the barking dog sounds in buffalo bill's dungeon and um, you know goodbye horses which is yeah one of and, my favorite scenes in the movie yeah and it's right we have it's just this it's this cacophony of of barking and screaming and jets and airplane motors and yeah. and even bird sounds which is really kind of a fun thing given Clarice's uh last, last name yeah. and and even and even um Lecter makes a little bit of a pun about her five, last five, name five. Yeah. and uh so we've got the hawks and you know you I, I I'm pretty sure everybody in every every movie that's ever used a hawk sound has used that same hawk sound I think yeah. <laughs> like yeah. yeah no and I think that it's 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 really interesting and especially that you mentioned the the music you know, I love the score for this movie as well. And in case you couldn't tell, I love everything with this movie. But yeah, yeah. Um, but I think that the score is is really brilliant too, because like you said, it's not it's not uh, a horror movie score. Like even when Clarice is getting up in the the like storage lot, and normally that would be very scary. You know, you'd have strings, and she'd be looking around this dark storage container, and she'd mm. find the head, and ah. yeah, right. But no, it doesn't do that. It it it's it's you know Howard Shore has spoken about it, and he said that his goal for the movie wasn't to make a the soundtrack for the movie he was to make the soundtrack for clarice's mind yeah and so that when she sees the you know in the very opening scene when she's in crawford's office and she's looking at the wall of bodies that the music is empathetic it's not scary because clarice has empathy for these people clarice wants to help them she doesn't she's not scared of this she's or she might be frightened by it and, and worried and kind of intimidated but she's but the ultimate thing that keeps driving her forward is the empathy and the to want to help the, the, the um, exactly the the drive to save these people right um, and, and it's so a... i think that's really interesting with that the, the film soundtrack doesn't you know you could listen to it and there's there's of course like it's not like a happy soundtrack it's not you know romantic it's not it's definitely got an eerie feel to it mm. but it's unsettling you know if you were to listen to it i don't think that you would immediately point at a serial killer movie and go like which is also you know interesting that because howard shore also did the soundtrack for seven which is completely different that soundtrack is all like grinding gears and yeah creepy you know sounds like bugs jittering and and yeah lots of strings and it's very scary very dramatic completely different than this and seven very much a movie that you know perhaps as as um you know we looked at uh perhaps you know was very inspired by um if not indirectly um by silence of the lambs so it's interesting that the scores for those two movies are are two completely different um sounds and two completely different feelings and likewise psycho which is another film that you of course could and of course very easily relates to the the 
you know, the trans element too of, of yes. cross-dressing and well, it does. cross-dressing and trans are two different things, but still hypes up that stereotype of, of like it a does. cross-dressing killer. Yeah, um, absolutely. It does. So definitely some, some comparisons and it's kind of, uh, this film sits time-wise in between those two. Um, yeah, but yeah, I yeah. mean, and, and even, you know, there's definitely a fascination in American culture and therefore, of course, in our films, this fascination with serial killers. Mm-hmm. And of course, that extends to this film as well. And uh, I think that's very interesting. And, you know, I, I think we see some moments here. It's kind of interesting with a little bit of the production design where this film kind of speaks to that. Yeah, um, yeah, that obsession or that almost celebritization. I don't know if that's a word. If it isn't, I just made it up of serial killers. And, you know, Buffalo Bill kind of representing an amalgam of several serial killers. And we see, you know, American flags everywhere and kind of um, even at I, one point draped over a bot like a head, a head, you know, a basically head. Yeah. right with the Clarice finds in the storage unit. So it's you know certainly there is this this fascination of course i think it's easy to understand the the fascination because it it speaks to such an extreme part of the human condition that you know i mean it's it would hard to not be fascinated in a way that you want to try to understand how can a human being exhibit this kind of behavior you know it's um so i at least you know i i think most people find it fascinating in that way um i guess there's also that sometimes we're fascinated by gruesome things that are far outside of our our own daily lives and so somewhat like a you know driving by a car crash you're kind of compelled to look um Mm -hmm. at at such a like a a a rare hopefully rare uh piece of kind of gruesome scene you know but yeah yeah. but yeah i you know it's interesting i it's really been fun to to discuss the film through and hear your perspective on it as somebody Mm -hmm. who you know as, as somebody who really adores this film i find that it's it's increased my appreciation of it um and maybe i'll go back and watch it again after this conversation uh, but it's been really enjoyable, and I, yeah, no, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. I, I've had a blast, man, as I always do. It's not like I've—I I've, don't think I've ever ended one of these conversations and been like, "Well, Colin, boy, that—that—that that, that yeah. stank. That See was a waste of week. That was a waste of an hour. Yeah, it's like the yeah, old I guess ball and chain. <laughs> that's what keeps keeps us keeps us coming back for more. It's always fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, with that with that being said, uh, Colin, thank you so much uh, for spending this hour with me discussing this yeah, film. Thanks. And that'll be excited to see what we choose to do next time as we explore uh, different films outside of just the realm of Werner Herzog. We'll continue that trend. But uh, until next time, everybody, thanks so much for hanging out with us. Thanks so much for listening to us. We hope you've enjoyed it. We will see you next time. Bye-bye.